We're continuing in First Thessalonians this morning. First Thessalonians chapter two. It's still page nine eighty six in the Bibles in the rows, and we'll be reading verses thirteen through sixteen. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displease God, and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. This is the word of the Lord. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, this is your word, and we come before it. Ask that we would come humbly and with open hearts and minds. Fill us with your Spirit today. Lord, would you strengthen me by your Spirit, strengthen my voice, my words. May I proclaim what is true today. Lord, work in each of us for your glory and for our good and joy. Amen. When I was a kid, I I considered playing football. I, I wanted to be a wide receiver. But then I realized I was either way too small and I didn't really want to get hit by the guys that were all a lot bigger than me, or after I had a massive growth spurt and was skinny as a rail, I realized that if I got hit, I would probably break. So I played tennis instead. Uh, I really love tennis, but that's what I chose instead. But I still love tossing the ball around, and I love watching wide receivers in particular their route running, their ability to, to get open, and the amazing hands. Some of the catches made throughout the history of the sport are mind-boggling to me. And in light of the Super Bowl tonight, I just wanted to mention a few of the great performances of wide receivers. It would be nearly a crime to do so without mentioning Jerry Rice, the great San Francisco 49er, one of the greatest receivers to ever live. And in Super Bowl 23 in 1989, he had 11 receptions for 215 yards, something that still has not been surpassed in yardage, uh, though sadly it was in a game against the Cincinnati Bengals. Then in Super Bowl 24 and 29, he had three touchdowns in each of those, which are still a record for number of touchdowns. And I could mention numerous others, but I also remember as a kid seeing highlights of Super Bowl 10. I didn't, don't remember seeing it live. I was three at the time. Uh, But it was there that Lynn Swan was the MVP with only four catches, but he had four catches for 161 yards, and one of them is the most iconic catch probably in Super Bowl history at this point in time. Maybe, I don't know, David Tyree might surpass that with the Giants and the helmet catch, but Lynn Swan, Terry Bradshaw makes a deep pass, 64-yard pass with about three minutes to go to seal the game, and Swan had to leap, tip it up in the air, and then as he's falling down, catch it on the way to the ground. And it was just a beautiful pass uh, as, as he got that. Now, obviously, professional wide receivers, to be one, takes years and years of practice. But there is one simple thing that every wide receiver must do. Catch the ball. They have to receive it. They have to do that. Once that has been done, well, then they can do the other things. They can take off and run, yards after the catch, all those kind of things. 
Now, this morning, though, I'm not talking about receiving footballs, learning how to catch a football at all. But I do want to talk about what it is to receive the Word of God, to learn how to, to take it in. This was such a distinguishing feature of the Thessalonian believers, and how they did it, how they received the Word of God, set them up for faithfulness. This morning, in these few verses, we're going to see a few aspects in regard to receiving God's Word. Uh, just two that I want to highlight, and the, the first is the attitude of reception, and then the after effect of reception. So the attitude and the after effect. And then the second point, Paul addresses some very specific situations, but the principle, I think, applies in many different arenas of life, and so we can draw that out some. And my hope and prayer is that we would see just how vital it is to view the Word of God rightly and to receive it well. So look at verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the Word of God, which you heard from us, you, rec- you accepted it not as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God, which is at work in you believers. Now here again is an occasion of thanks. Paul has just spent a decent bit of ink giving a defense for his ministry uh, so as to assure the believers, to, to remind them of what they know to be true themselves. He pointed out that his ministry and that the ministry of his companions was one of integrity and, and grace, of truth and sacrifice because of their genuine affection and sacrifice that, that they showed for the Thessalonians. It, what they did was real and right and good. Now he returns to the idea of Thanksgiving. It's a second Thanksgiving, much like a hobbit would have second breakfast. He jumps back to another Thanksgiving. And if you recall in chapter 1, Paul gave thanks to God for the believers, and in particular for, uh, to, to, their, to their faith and the fact that even in the midst of much affliction, they received the word with joy of the Holy Spirit. And that emphasis in chapter 1 was more on the, the, the difficulties surrounding receiving the Word. They were being afflicted as they received the Word. He now comes back to this reception, though, of the Word, and he amplifies it. He draws out what he had mentioned earlier. And I think this is, I think this is such a key aspect to the vibrancy of their Christian lives. So again, Paul thanks God. He thanks God, and and, and he does this constantly without ceasing, you could translate it. The reality is, and, and Paul continues to point us to this as he gives thanks, is that without God's work, the, the simple subject of his thanks would not be there. If God wasn't at work, he wouldn't have anything to give thanks for in the lives of the Thessalonian believers. God had to work, so Paul makes that clear. And, and I think by making this clear, it's, it's both humbling and encouraging to them. Because it's only by God's grace that we're saved, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works that no one should boast. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, grasping this truth is extremely beneficial for all believers, as it does grow our thankfulness, as Greg Beale wrote, A thankful attitude that Christ has died for one's sins, including lack of faith and antagonism to God's will, is the fertile spiritual ground from which godly attitudes grow and from which the desire to please God comes. That desire to please God, the the desire to do the good works that God has prepared beforehand for us to walk in them. When we realize what God has done for us, when we realize all that He's done to take us out of the kingdom of darkness and transfer us into the kingdom of light, we desire to then please Him. 
So what is it further that, that, that Paul gives thanks for and that really is an integral ingredient to living a life pleasing to God? Well, it's the manner, the attitude in which they receive the Word of God. So when Paul, when, when they heard the Word of God from Paul and his companions, they accepted it properly. Now, now what does it mean to accept it properly? Well, the text tells us to some degree, they accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really and truly is, the word of God. Now, I, I remember back when I was in seminary, I heard one of the professors use the following phrase, the preaching of the word of God is the word of God. The preaching of the word of God is the word of God. And I had never heard that before. I'd never heard it put in that manner. I'd always had a reverence and appreciation for the preaching of God's Word, but never had I, I, I drawn that explicit conclusion. But this is really what Paul wrote concerning what he proclaimed. And, and we might be tempted to think that, that this is just because Paul is an apostle, and so because it's him who, who preached, the Word could be categorized like this. But if you look back to verse 8 in, in chapter 1, he wrote this, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Paul referred to the work and the, the preaching of the Thessalonians as the word of the Lord going forth. Listen to Westminster Larger Catechism, question 160. What is required of those that hear the word preached? It is required of those that hear the word preached that they attend upon it with diligence, preparation, and prayer. Examine what they hear by the Scriptures. Receive the truth with faith, love, meekness, and readiness of mind as the Word of God. Meditate and confer of it. Hide it in their hearts and bring forth the fruit of it in their lives. And further, the Second Helvetic Confession, which was written by Henrik Bullinger, who was a, uh, an understudy of, of Zwingli, um, he, he writes in the, in the first chapter of, of the Second Helvetic Confession these words, and this is where um, my professor had gotten what he'd said. He said, Scripture is the Word of God. Again, the selfsame apostle to the Thessalonians, when, says he, you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God. For the Lord himself has said in the gospel, it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of my Father speaking through you. Therefore, he who hears you hears me, and he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. And then, the preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. Wherefore, when this Word is now preached in the church by preachers lawfully called, we believe that the very Word of God is proclaimed and received by the faithful." A faithful preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. Now, that's not saying everything that the preacher says is, is that in a sense, but, but what is conveyed is the message, it, it, the faithful message is the Word of God. And this is humbling on all sides, extremely humbling. Any preacher who has this privilege ought to take this very, very seriously. But Paul's point here is not on the preacher. It's toward the hearers. When we come, we are not simply hearing the words of man, but we're hearing the words of God as His Word is proclaimed. So how might this reality affect how we come on a Sunday? 
How might this reality affect how we come on a Sunday? Do we prepare our hearts and minds to hear God's Word? Are we well-rested well for this privilege? Do we see it for what it really is? Because it really is amazing how God works. I read this from uh, one pastor. He said, consider God's grace and the wonder of His wisdom in this. God takes sinful, fallible men and calls them to proclaim His Word to His people. In spite of the preacher's many weaknesses, God, by His Spirit, makes the Word effectual to His children. If you've ever wondered if salvation is of the Lord alone, just look at the preaching of men, and you will quickly realize that it must be, for no one could be saved merely through the weak words of men. God works through the preaching of His Word. The preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. So just to recap, the Thessalonians received the Word that, that Paul and his companions preached. They, they heard it. They accepted it. They welcomed it into their lives as it ought to be welcomed as the very Word of God. We've already seen the fruit of this reception in that in, in chapter 1, verse 9, it says that they turned, as a result of this, they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And you see that this Word that is preached, this Word that comes, God's Word that comes, is at work in you believers. Now, what does He mean by that? How does the, 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 the Word work? Well, some of it is our, our reception of it, and, and others is, is God is working through His Holy Spirit in the Word. But we, we ought to listen to it consistently, constantly, and in humility and by faith. Colossians 2, 6 and 7, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in Him. So as you received Him by faith, continue to walk in Him by that faith, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. As you, as you receive the Word, continue to receive the Word then as well. We believe that God works. He could take a heart of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh. He works in us by His Word to will and to act for His good pleasure, Philippians 2.13. The Spirit of God is at work through the Word of God. You could look at Romans 12.2 or Psalm 119.9. You know, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your Word. God's Word works. Consider Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3 starting in verse 16, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory and in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's, in, in many ways, that's Paul's prayer, not only for spiritual growth, but that, the, the, that, that God would be at work in them through the work of the apostles, through the Word of God in them. That God would be at work to help them to see the depth and, and to, to know the love of Christ. Folks, we believe that in the gospel there is the power of God, right? Romans 1.16 for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the, the, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Romans 10, you know, how can they believe? How, how can they believe unless they hear? And how can they hear unless the word is preached to them? 
Listen to this description of the Word in Acts 6, verse 7. And the Word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. You see it also in, in, in chapter 19, verse 20, the same kind of language. And of course, we, we all are probably familiar with Hebrews 4.12. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Folks, the Word of God is at work. The Word of God, this is, this is not a static book of just printed words on a page. It is living and active. God's Word is at work, and Paul firmly believed that God was active and at work in the lives of those who received the Word rightly. And he saw evidence of that reception. He saw evidence of it. That's what he turns to next, and he continues to give thanks for. Look at verse 14. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. For you, for you. These are the reasons that Paul is able to say what he, said, what he did about the reception of the Word. He has ample evidence of their proper belief. Right off the bat, he returns to this idea of imitation that we first encountered in, in chapter 1, verse 6. And here, they imitated the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. Now, why did Paul turn to those churches specifically, the ones in Judea? I, I think it's it's really difficult to know for sure in this. He doesn't tell us specifically. Perhaps it's because they were the first churches, and so they're, in a, in a sense, a, a paradigm to follow. And because, you know, he does give us a little bit of a clue in, in what follows was that they were suffering the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. See, the churches in Judea suffered because of fellow Jews, whereas the Thessalonians suffered because of fellow Thessalonians. So there's a similarity at that point. But honestly, persecutions are persecutions. They're of the same character. It's the warfare between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, and it's going to continue like that until Christ returns and sets all things right. But there's another reason that Paul could have mentioned the similarity and even just said to them that you're suffering the same things that these other churches have suffered. And I think it's a simple thing, and, it, and it's probably somewhat psychological, but it's, it's this, that they don't feel alone. That they don't feel alone in it. It's encouraging in some ways to know that what you are experiencing is normal. I remember early in our marriage, Erin knew what I was going to say here, and I hadn't even talked to her about this. Early in our marriage, we got in more arguments than I thought we were going to get into. We had, we had lived apart during our engagement. I was overseas, and so we were only in the country for like three months before we got married, and then we had arguments, and I'm like, what in the world is going on here? And I remember going to one of my best friends and saying, David, dude, please help. Like, what's going And he just looks at me and he goes, Chad, it's totally normal. And it's like a weight just kind of came off. Like, oh, okay. Like, I did not feel, he's like, we've been through the same thing. It, it's normal, especially in this first year or two of marriage. And so, honestly, it, it, it helped that there's less of a despair when you don't feel alone. 
When you know that there's people in the fight with you, the, the despair can, can wane a bit more. And so for the Thessalonians, I think their faith would have been encouraged that they weren't alone in the suffering that they were experiencing. That it wasn't just their simple context that had this, but that everyone, all believers everywhere were experiencing similar things. Now at this point, as we move into this text, this is actually a part of the text where some people have laid charges against Paul that Paul's anti-Semitic, okay, that he's anti-Jewish. And if you read it in a certain way, you can see that. But I do find it pretty difficult to grasp that if you read it honestly and openly and you read anything else of Paul, because you would see how deeply he longed for the salvation of the Jewish people. He actually said in Romans, if I could be accursed for the salvation of the Jewish people, let it be so. I'd say that's pretty good love. I mean, he, 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 fought the good, he longed to be with Christ, but he said, if you can save all the Jewish people, you can, you can curse me. I don't think that's anti-Semitic. But, you know, our text does feel a bit negative. And I think the reason is simple. Because of what some people in Judea, the Jewish people, were doing to believers. They were persecuting the churches. Paul had been one of those people prior to encountering the risen Lord Jesus. He knew what it meant. And honestly, it didn't matter to him whether the opposition was Jewish or Gentile. He wasn't a big fan of it. So then what did he write about the opposition? First thing, said they killed the Lord Jesus. Yes, the Romans executed Jesus, but it was the Jewish religious authorities and the general populace that called for Jesus' crucifixion, that cried out, no, give us, give us Barabbas instead. And so the responsibility in many ways fell more to the Jewish people. Second, they killed the prophets. And this is a picture, in, in many ways, of utter rebellion and hardness of heart to God's Word. This came as a result of loving sin more than loving the Creator, more than loving their God, more than loving the covenant God, Yahweh. They loved sin more. Third, they drove us out. This is the persecution that they inflicted on Paul and his companions. They expelled them. They drove them out of town. They sought to crush them. Fourth, they displease God. And this, I think, is the heart of what Paul is getting at. So much of this letter is about a life pleasing to God. Paul was deeply concerned and driven in his own life. That, this, this, this fueled his life was to please God above all things. He longed for that for the believers all around him. So to level this charge against the opponents brings it all to a head, I think. And what he saw with these opponents uh, of their work was those living in open rebellion to God and His law. They were in the flesh and in sin, and they were unable to please God. And then along with that comes the fifth point, a bit longer, that says, they oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. In fact, if, if you want to put a charge of anti-anything in this letter, it would be that these Jews were being anti-Gentile. Or really, even the Thessalonians were being anti-anybody else 
Um, because they were opposing the, 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 the truth, uh, uh, the, the proclamation of hope and life in the gospel. They opposed all mankind in their hindering of the spread of the gospel. And throughout Acts, we see the Jewish com- community not merely keeping Paul and others from speaking, but utterly silencing them. Just read through Acts and you'll see it over and over again. And we know that in Thessalonica, the, the work of the unbelieving Jews led to a, a very truncated visit by Paul. Hindering the proclamation of the gospel is essentially cutting off the vehicle of salvation. The gospel must be proclaimed and heard. It is a message. It is good news. It is the message of the cross. And to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Without this proclamation, people cannot be saved. Paul wrote in Ephesians 1.13, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you heard it, you had to hear it. It was proclaimed to you. This is the gospel of your salvation. So this was opposition to God. What they were doing was opposing God. And consider this, Paul had lived that life prior to his own salvation. He knew the mindset intimately, and I'm sure it was painful for him to consider what other people were doing in, 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 in going in the way that he had previously gone before in his ignorance and unbelief. And then he wrote in regard to this activity, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. Now, this is not the easiest verse to look at or really to understand and grasp fully. This idea of filling up the measure of their sins. And, and I think we can turn to, to Matthew. You can go back to some of the Old Testament that talked about the sins of the Amorites were not yet complete or things like that. But I think in Matthew 23, it helps. Jesus is pronouncing woes upon the scribes and the Pharisees. And he says this, starting in verse 31. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. We've already seen this in First Thessalonians, right? You've killed the prophets. You killed the Lord Jesus and killed the prophets. So that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? I think Paul is drawing from this idea. The sins of the unbelieving Jews had come to full measure. And the reality is this, judgment is coming. You know, if you, if you think about God's patience in not uh, dealing with sin completely, is, is that maybe there's an aspect of that it hasn't come to the full yet. Paul is declaring that the opposition of the Jews to the preaching of the gospel is, though now, the, the culmination, the, the conclusion of a long history of sin. Throughout their history, they and all mankind left to their own hearts and desires, we have resisted God, but now judgment has come upon them at last. Wrath has come. But I think in all of this, it's, it's, it's mentioned to point us to the after effect of properly receiving the gospel. And that's standing firm in the midst of opposition. That's what Paul highlights at this point, is it's standing firm. They received the Word of God, and they were able to stand firm amidst this type of persecution. Folks, there will be many in our lives who actively oppose the preaching of the good news of grace in Christ Jesus and are receiving properly the Word of God. And the reality is, though, is receiving properly the Word of God will prepare us to respond rightly to the opposition that we're going to face. 
And so where I want to focus as we close here, direct our hearts and minds, is on that receiving of the gospel. Receiving of the Word of God, because that's what we can kind of work on on our own. Like, I'm not saying go out and look for persecution and test it all, okay? I'm saying let, let's work on the receiving of the Word. When you take it to heart, when the Word of God affects the whole of your life, it enables and strengthens you to do the things that God has called you to. Do we believe this is the very Word of God? And so, in your own private, personal times of reading, as we're reading the Word together as a church, as we come together and hear the Word preached, we're receiving the Word of God. That is strengthening us. That, that, that's giving us… Um, it's, some of it's being stored away over time that may be used down the road. But, but we're learning it. You know, I've talked to people, and, you know, as we receive the Word of God, and even if it's like, this, this doesn't fit with where I am right now, it's kind of like a football team running a two-minute drill over and over and over again in practice. They may not use it, but once every three years. But if they don't run it over and over and over again and learn it, it won't be there. And so as we receive the Word of God rightly, and we take it to heart, and we digest it, and we hide His Word in our heart and let it be a lamp unto our feet, it will guide us at those different times. And so part of that, part of what it's going to do, as Paul points out, is enduring suffering. And it could be the suffering of persecution, it could be the, the suffering of trial and pain and just difficulty in our lives that come from living in a fallen world. Part of it will enable us and, and strengthen us in the sharing of the gospel. But there is also the everyday aspect of life, and that's of putting sin to death, of a life of repentance and faith in, in the mundane, doing dishes, laundry, shuttling kids all over town, going to work, parenting, marriage, every aspect of life the Word of God touches. And so, as we receive, we let the Word be at work in our lives, and we pray for the Spirit to be at work through the Word to conform us to Christ, the one who even in the midst of greater suffering than we will ever know lived in a manner pleasing and glorifying to the Father. So let me encourage us all in this. Let's be a people who seek to rightly receive the Word of God regularly, who come before His Word on a daily and weekly basis to hear God's Word for us, for our good, and pray that it would be at work in us by His Spirit. It is powerful. It is for us. It is where we ordinarily come to be strengthened by grace. It is where we come to know and love our God more and more. It is His gift for us. Let us come to it with a humble heart. You know, what does He say in Scripture? But to this one I will look, to the one who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Let's pray. Father, would you be at work in our hearts and our minds? Help us to be a people who receive your word.
who hear the Word as it is, whether it's daily as we read through it, that this is the Word of God, or we hear it weekly preached from from Your Word. Lord, it is the Word of God for us. So may we walk in that truth. Grow us, Lord, in conformity to Your Son. We pray in Christ Jesus. Amen.